All right, take two. Okay, Ryan's going to uh, lead us in our uh, first two sermon readings. So, Ryan, go ahead. Our first sermon reading for today comes from 1 Peter 2, 4 through 5. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in a sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And our second reading for today comes from Romans 12, 1 through 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed by this world, but be tested by the renewal of your mind, that be by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Great. Thank you, Ryan. That was great. Our uh, sermon text today comes from Malachi. Uh, we'll be reading, it's kind of a long passage today. Uh, this is Malachi 1.6, and we'll read through 2.9. A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts, to you. O priests who despise my name, but you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those who are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For not my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is, its food may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame and sick. And this you bring as your offering? Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. And now, O priest, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them, because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. 
So shall you know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave it to them. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instructions from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have turned aside from your, the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instructions. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And so I make you despised and abased before all the people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. Uh, so we are continuing our series on the book of Malachi. Uh, so just by way of recap, just to refresh your memory. Uh, Malachi was in the last uh, in a line of a series of prophets who we call the post-exilic prophets. Uh, the post-exilic prophets were those who were active after uh, this small band of Israelites returned to Jerusalem from their captivity in Babylon to rebuild uh, their broken civilization. Uh, we've already studied the first two, Haggai and Zechariah. Uh, their uh, main focus was on rebuilding the temple. And they also promised a uh, bright and glorious future for the people of Israel. Now, Malachi comes around sometime later, perhaps as much as 50 or more years later, and he is more focused on reforming worship. Uh, now that the temple's been rebuilt, uh, what's the point of the temple? It's to worship. And so Malachi's message is mostly about worship. Um, as we talked about last week, though, the problem is the people uh, in Jerusalem are broken and dispirited because they see no glimmer of this bright and glorious future that had been promised by Haggai and Zechariah. And this disappointment uh, has led them to question their relationship with God. Uh, this is a, they see it as a broken relationship, and it's led to this crisis of worship that Malachi is uh, confronting in his book. Uh, if you'll remember last week, we looked at Malachi's reassurance that this relationship between God and the Judeans was still in place. And this week, we will focus further into the details of this crisis of worship as Malachi turns his attention to the priests who were the ones in charge of worship. Now, uh, before we really get into our text, uh, just some background information here, uh, because we don't really know how, uh, we probably don't spend a lot of time trying to figure out how ancient Judean society worked, but, but here's how things worked. Um, the priests were a special group within Israel that were in charge of the rituals and sacrifices associated with the temple. That was their job. Uh, the way the story worked is that after the exodus from Egypt, God made a covenant with his people and God's very presence entered into their midst in a structure called the tabernacle. The presence of God, uh, a good way to think of it is it's an invasion. It's an invasion from the realm of the divine and as a result of this invasion, uh, special care had to be taken to approach uh, this divine presence. And so the various rituals and sacrifices, along with their rules, were meant to ensure that the proper care was taken in approaching this divine alien presence. Israel's priests were the ones 
who were given the job of ensuring that those rituals and rules were properly followed. Uh, the institution of the priesthood is, uh, can be found in Leviticus 10, and it begins with this charge, quote, You are to distinguish between the holy and the common, and between the unclean and the clean. And you are to teach the people of Israel all the statues that the Lord has spoken to them by Moses. Now, this language of holy and common and clean and unclean is what I meant by making sure that this invasion of the divine into the human realm is properly maintained. Because the intersection of these worlds that occurs at the tabernacle and later the temple is potentially volatile. It's almost like matter and antimatter getting together. Um, A good analogy to this, I was trying to think about an analogy, and this is the best I came up with. It's kind of like a a radioactive hazard, right? Radioactivity is dangerous, but you can approach it if you wear the right clothing and if proper precautions are taken. However, it's not something that you would have known intuitively. You can't see radiation. You can't uh, smell radiation. You can't use your normal senses when you encounter the effects of radiation. And so what you need is like a nuclear scientist who can teach you things that like, for example, 3.6 Rotgens is uh, not great, but also not terrible. I don't know if anybody's seen Chernobyl, but, uh, and you should, uh, by the way, um, And the point, though, is you need, if you're going to approach radioactivity, you need someone to equip you properly with the right clothing, with a dosimeter, and they need to give you the proper rules and procedures to follow. So the priesthood is kind of like that. We're kind of dealing with God as kind of like a radioactive substance. Now, membership in this priesthood is hereditary. You had to be a descendant of one of Jacob's sons, Levi. Okay, so that's the first word. The Hebrew word for priest is Kohen. Okay, and even today, if you meet someone named Cohen, who has the last name Cohen, they're probably descended uh, from a priestly family. Okay, in fact, uh, they've actually done, this is really cool. Uh, This is totally, uh, has nothing to do with the sermon. I just think it's neat. They've actually done genetic studies and have demonstrated that a high percentage of those with the last name Cohen exhibit a particular gene sequence, which is now termed the Cohen gene. Uh, So kind of cool. Now, if you were a descendant of Levi, then what's cool about it is you have a guaranteed job. You're a priest. Uh, You were supported by tithes that were brought to the temple, and there were certain specified portions of the sacrifice that you were allowed to eat. So it was kind of a sweet gig if you could get it. Uh, But as you can imagine, there was also potential for abuse. Uh, There's several stories in the Old Testament where the the abuse of this office of priest is found. Uh, Most of these uh, stories involve the priest defrauding the uh, offerers or using their priestly office to enrich themselves. Now, in our passage today in Malachi, he has a lot of strong and pointed criticism for the priests. However, most of these criticisms don't have to do with this usual corruption, uh, this form of self-enrichment that we read elsewhere. This is different. Malachi's message centers on the failure of the priests to properly execute their duties. Their problem is their failure to render proper worship. Now, um, just to kind of connect this with last week, remember last week's passage was Malachi's reassurance that there still existed this special relationship 
between God and Judea. Now, worship is the ritual maintenance of this relationship. And Malachi's concern was that by neglecting their duties, the priests were the ones who had strained this special relationship with God and his people. So let us turn now to our passage with this in mind and dig a little more closely into what's going on. So we start with Malachi asserting a proverb. Uh, The proverb is that the son honors his father and a servant his master. Uh, So these words would have been kind of a a universally agreed on principle. This was something that like everybody would accept it, which is why Malachi wisely begins his argument with this proverb. It's like, okay, let's get everybody on the same page here. Isn't this true? We all agree it's true. Now I'm going to make my argument based on that fact that we all agree on. Now, one thing you have to understand is uh, that in the ancient world, there was an honor-shame culture. That's what we call this, the honor-shame culture. And this was a big deal. It's not so big to us, but in the ancient world, it was a big deal. And so issues of honor would have been very significant to Malachi's audience. Uh, Not ascribing due honor to a worthy person would have been a major breach of cultural norms. Uh, And therefore, this statement that Malachi makes that the Judean priests had not properly honored God would have been quite shocking, probably not in the way we read it. Uh, We would have kind of of minimized that like, okay, kind of read over it real quick. Not for them. This would have been very shocking. Now, there's also an interesting contrast that Malachi is trying to draw here. Uh, related to this honor-shame. At several points in the first chapter, uh, namely verses 5, 11, and 14, uh, we uh, come across this phrase that's repeated. God is declared great among the nations. Now, anytime you read a passage and something's repeated, it's repeated for a reason. It's important. We need to understand that. Now, this statement uh, that God is honored among the nations is made really simply. It's with, there's no qualification. You know, there's no like explanation of why he's great. It just says he's great. And there's a point for that. God's honor is the result of greatness that is inherent to him as God. He's God. He's great. He's just, it's just inherent to his nature. Now, this is in contrast to last week in which the uniqueness of the Judeans is the result of the Judeans' uh, relationship with God. Now, in other words, God's honor is a result of of his being in status as king or creator. It's inherent to him. Uh, Whereas the Judeans is derived from their relationship with God. And so uh, when we, people who study these things, these honor shame cultures, uh, one of the things is there's a big distinction between those two types of honor. So one we call ascribed honor and one we call acquired. So ascribed honor results from just who you are, okay? Uh, whereas acquired results from some kind of action or something you do uh, or is derivative in some way. Uh, in the ancient world of honor-shame cultures, ascribed honor was the highly valued type, okay? Uh, we tend to value achievement, 
over status. But in their world, status was way more important. So Malachi is purposely contrasting the fact that God has ascribed honor versus the Judeans achieved honor. And that's what's making his criticism all the more pointed. And so pointed and so shocking is this criticism that you can hear the surprise and incredulity into the imagined response of the the priests. How have we despised your name? In other words, the priests aren't really setting out to insult God. Rather, they're doing so in ignorance and apathy. And so they're surprised when Malachi brings this up. So what exactly is the issue that has so enraged Malachi? So verse 7 and 8 tells us, The sacrifices offered at the temple are polluted because they are of inferior quality. That word polluted probably comes across, doesn't really come across near as bad as it sounds. But when you're talking about rituals in the ancient world, polluted is like awful. That's like the worst thing you can do. And the animals used in the sacrifices, we are told, are blind, lame, or sick. And so they're unfit for the temple rituals. If we were to turn to Deuteronomy 15, we would learn that only specific animals could be used for sacrifices. The animal had to be a firstborn male. It must have no blemish, and it cannot be blind or lame. And the job of the priest was to make sure that these conditions were met. The priest's willingness to accept inferior animals shows contempt for the sacrificial system, and as we're going to find out, for God himself. Now, to understand why this is such a big deal, we have to understand a little bit about the symbolism behind the sacrifices. So you see, religious rituals and sacrifices in particular were just the way people understood or learned how to relate to the world of the divine in the ancient world. It was a highly symbolic system. And the important thing to understand is that these symbols symbolize something. They communicated meaning. Now, we might learn something. We might uh, try to derive meaning by doing things like, I don't know, reading a book. Or God help us a tweet or maybe a PowerPoint presentation. But in the ancient world where literacy and mass media was not really a thing, it makes sense that a symbolic ritual system was a useful method to communicate meaning. So having said that, what did the sacrificial system communicate? So first things first, we have to get rid of this common idea that we have of the sacrificial system, that the offerings were primarily a way of dealing with sin. Now, uh, dealing with sin, what we call the, the technical term for this is expiating, okay, was part of the sacrificial system, but only a part of it. The reason we make such a big deal about it is because the New Testament uses that particular component of the sacrificial system in several places to explain the significance of Jesus' death. So it's not that this is wrong, it's just that the sacrificial system was more than that. Okay, and let me explain how. So, we have to turn to Hebrew. All right, we've already had one Hebrew word, we get to have another one, okay? It's, it's not a resurrection church sermon unless we do like three word studies. Um, the Hebrew word for sacrifice is korban, okay, korban. And that word means to draw near. 
Remember that the rituals and sacrificial system the priests were in charge of were necessitated by this alien presence of God dwelling in the midst of Israel. Drawing near to the divine realm that had invaded the earthly required special care and handling. And the sacrificial system was the means to draw near to this holy space. The sacrificial system was about maintaining this relationship and communing with God. Expressions of thanks, gratitude, love, symbolized by the sacrifice and offerings, were an important means of establishing and cultivating the relationship. That's how you approached in that world someone that was that needed honor, that was greater than you. You notice the one verse that talks about what would happen if you presented uh, these offerings to your uh, governor, you know, an earthly ruler. It's because this is how they thought. Now, the other thing we need to understand is that the job of the priest was not, was not just about deciding what was acceptable for sacrifice and what was not. The priestly office included a teaching function. Remember, this, is, this system is about communicating. So it makes sense that, that, that you're supposed to learn something from these sacrifices and these rituals. So Deuteronomy 33.10 is a good place where we see this. It says that the priests, this is what Deuteronomy 33.10 says, were to teach Jacob, meaning Israel, your rules and Israel your law. Now, parallel to that, the next line, which means like kind of like the same thing. So, so they're supposed to teach the rules and laws. It says, put incense before you and the whole burnt offerings of your altar. In other words, the sacrifices and rituals were also about instructing people about God, about who God was and about their relationship with God. Here's how it worked. So in order for objects to transgress this border from the earthly to the divine, or is, is the term is used in, in uh, you know, like the religious language in Deuteronomy, the common to the holy, it had to exhibit certain characteristics of the divine. In this way, the people learned what the divine world was and what God was like by the symbolism wrapped up in these objects. God wasn't broken or defective. He's perfect and whole. God was about life, not disease and sickness. So for example, you know, one of the things that, that they make a big deal in Leviticus and Deuteronomy is you can't touch a dead body and then go to the temple. Why? Because it's dead. Dead things don't come in contact with the living. Same thing with the animals. They're broken. God's not broken. God is whole. In effect, what the priests were doing then, if you understand this logic, is by accepting these inferior, polluted sacrifices, they're communicating to the people that God is inferior and polluted. God is broken in disease. Now, here's the thing. I don't think that was the intention of the priest. Likely, here's what I think happens. Here's what I think we have to understand about Malachi, and this is what I think will make it make sense to us and relate to us. Likely, the priest had inherited a job that really wasn't so glamorous anymore. They had this poor excuse from a temple, and their civilization was ruled by a foreign power with no sign of prosperity or hope for anything different. The priests were skeptical of God's goodness to the people in Judah, and they likely become apathetic. The sacrifices and rituals just became road to them. It was like just putting in time at your job, working from eight to five, punching a clock, just trying to run out the time. 
the job had devolved into just going through the motions rather than pursuing their calling with the passion that the office required. In such a situation, they took no pride in their job and what in their job. And what difference really does it make what condition the animal's in? I mean, they were just going to slit its throat and burn it anyway. I mean, what's the point? And Malachi tells us this is exactly what the attitude of the priest was. In verse 13, the priest says, what a weariness this is. And it's interesting, the, the word here that's used for weariness is tela'ah. The translation used here is good. It kind of gives the sense of, what a pain in the butt this is, or this is stupid, this is just BS, why am I doing this? All of those kind of get across what this statement is making here. And what's interesting is telah is not a common word we find in the Old Testament. It's used only rarely. Here's the other place you find it, Exodus 18. And there it's used to describe the suffering of the Hebrews under the impression of the Egyptians. So here we find the priests caring so little for their special condition, for their special position, that they liken their duties to Egyptian slavery. And so it's for this reason that God gets so angry that in chapter 2, verse 2, he curses the priests. And he says to the priests, this is great, God even says the dishonor is so bad, what you are doing is so wrong and it's so offensive to me that the only equitable punishment that I can give you is to spread dung on your faces. I really wish Gabe and Miles were here because, because God is basically saying, I want to smear poop on your faces. What that does, though, is it renders the, the, uh, the, the priests polluted and as ugly as they have presented God to the people by accepting these sacrifices. Now, if we look at it this way, what we see is that the problem with, is that Israel's in a state of spiritual crisis. Their failure to see any movement to the promised bright future pictured by Haggai and Zechariah had left them without hope. As we learned last week, the people no longer saw themselves in any kind of meaningful relationship with God. Instead, they were dispirited. They were filled with uh, ennui. Uh, the rituals and sacrifices had become meaningless actions with no inner component. Uh, you can uh, imagine children asking their parents at this time why they just did these things. Why did I bring this offering to have it sacrificed? This is stupid. And the parents having no better response than we're Judeans. This is just what we do. It was the priests who were in charge, though, of this moral and spiritual condition of the people. Yet the priests had followed the people into their spiritual depression. With this mentality, it made no sense to be concerned about something as silly as sacrificial standards. I mean, they seem kind of arbitrary anyway. Uh, you could be really, uh, uh, you know, um, uh, uh, blatant about it. We're just going to kill the animals. So what difference does it make? The rituals had become just an empty civic ceremony. But here's what Malachi says to the priests. The lips of the priests should guard knowledge, and the people should seek instruction for the mouth, for his mouth, from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. See, the alternative for the priests was to have responded to the spiritual crisis 
with courage, hope, and faith. That was the point of their position, and that's what they were not doing. That's the main problem here. So what is happening in this passage? Okay, so that's what's happening in this passage. That's kind of the idea. Now, you might be thinking to yourself right now, so that's interesting. Uh, really, really great historical lesson about ancient Judean cultic worship practices. Uh, you know, didn't know that. Great. But, you know, here's the thing about me in my life. I don't actually sacrifice animals. And I'm pretty certain I'm not a priest. Uh, so if you genetically tested me, I probably wouldn't have that coing gene. So what am I supposed to get out of this passage? And I'm here to tell you right now, you're wrong and you're wrong. So typically, if anyone preaches from this practice, uh, from this passage, which they don't very often, uh, the message is usually directed to uh, pastors or leaders of the church. But here's what I want to argue to you. That part of what it means to have faith in Christ and to be a Christ follower is to accept this role of priest. The vision in the Old Testament was never about a small elite group of hereditary priests leading only the Israelites. The vision in the Old Testament is much bigger than that. The vision in the Old Testament was to create, is for God to create a kingdom of priests for the whole world. This vision, which the Levitical priesthood is but a type and shadow of, is ultimately realized in Christ. And the result of this is that we, as followers of Christ, are all priests. And all of us have a duty to guard knowledge and instruct those who seek and act as messengers of the Lord of hosts. Here is how Peter puts it in the passage that Ryan Matthews read to us from 1 Peter chapter 2. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So if you remember way back to our sermon series from Haggai, the story of Haggai was about rebuilding the temple. Only once the people rebuilt the temple, it sucked. It was pathetic. And the old people who remembered the first one actually cried because the new temple was so inferior. And Haggai's response to that was that God would shake the heaven and the earth. And he said the latter glory of this temple would be superior to the former. And what Peter is trying to help us understand here is that because of Christ, we have a new temple. And remember, the end goal of the temple was about the presence of God and drawing near to God. And now Christ has fully accomplished that goal. He has broken all the barriers that separate the divine and the earthly. And as a result, we have been given the very presence of God. And God's people, the church, are now that latter, more glorious temple that Haggai was talking about. This is that vision that Peter wants us to see because it means that now we're the ones who bring the presence of God to the world, just as the story of the Old Testament had always envisioned. We are the priests. So if we are this holy priesthood, as Peter says in verse 5, then this passage applies to you. 
This is not just about leaders. This is for everyone in the church because it's our job to deliver a message of courage, of hope and faith to a world that is broken and dispirited just like the Judeans were. As priests, we deliver this message of courage, hope, and faith by delivering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. This is what Paul is talking about in the other passage that Ryan read for us from Romans 12. I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, not inferior, which is your spiritual practice. Again, we have the same concept of offering sacrifices ourselves, following the example of Christ as priest to the world. Remember that the sacrifices were all about drawing near to God. And part of that is communicating what is God like. So in this new administration of the temple, we act as priests by doing the same, helping others draw near to God, not through the death of the animal, but by offering our own selves as our own bodily sacrifices to others. By following Christ's example in our actions of love toward others, we communicate to others what God is like. So here's a passage from Hebrews. I love this verse. It's very useful. Hebrews tells us that long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. (coughs) But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. In other words, what this Hebrews passage tells us is that the best way to understand and know God is by understanding and knowing Jesus. Our worship and our practices and our words and what we do in our daily life should all strive to reflect Christ because doing so tells the world what God is like. Failure to do so is just like these priests offering inferior sacrifices. It presents a distorted and flawed picture of God. And it's this responsibility that both Peter and Paul are trying to get us to understand and are trying to uh, uh, motivate us and to help us grasp and so that we can see ourselves as a part of it. If our thoughts and our actions and worship does not show the world the teachings and attitudes of Christ, then we offer inferior sacrifices. If our thoughts and actions and worship does not show the world the love of God and love of neighbor, then we are offering inferior sacrifices. If our thoughts, actions, and worship do not show the world self-sacrificial love, then we offer inferior sacrifices. We have been called to be priests and to offer sacrifices. Let us then, let this picture of drawing near to God and being priests of the world motivate us. Let us be a faith community that's dedicated to delivering a message of courage, faith, and hope to a broken and dispirited world that desperately yearns for an alternative. Let us be a faith community dedicated to demonstrating the beauty of this message of courage, faith, and hope in our actions. In other words, let us walk in the light of Christ in both word and deed. Amen. All right. So this is the time in our sermon when we talk. Anybody have any comments or questions or anything they would like to add?
Malachi. Yes, Linda. Most trivial. I <laughs> recently named Cody, C O H N, instead of 